I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Robert T. London, MD, psychiatrist and author of Find Freedom Fast, short-term therapy that works. Anxieties are hitting epidemic levels in the United States. The Anxiety and Depression Association of America reports that 40 million American adults suffer from an anxiety disorder every year. In his new book, veteran psychiatrist Dr. Robert T. London shares the keys to saying goodbye to anxiety, phobias, PTSD, and insomnia for good. His three-step method empowers people to help themselves. They learn to focus on the problem, challenge the thinking that led to the problem, and replace old behaviors and habits with new ones to bring fast relief. Dr. London is a well-known psychiatrist, educator, and writer, a practitioner for 40 years. He is the founder and former head of the Short-Term Psychotherapy Unit at NYU Langone Medical Center in New York City and a pioneer in consumer healthcare radio and TV programming. Welcome to the show, Dr. London. Uh, Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay, so your book, Find Freedom fast, short-term therapy that works. Well, I I guess the first question is, well, first of all, what is short-term therapy and why does it work and who does it work for? Well, it doesn't, obviously, it's not going to work for everybody, but short-term therapy basically tries to do what most people in medicine do, whether it's surgery, medicine, pediatrics, obstetrics, or gynecology, whatever the specialty is, circumscribe the problem and treat just what the person is suffering from. Obviously, it's not going to work for every mental uh, problem that there is. But the point is, so much of um, talk therapy can go on forever and ever and ever. And from the time I started um, being a psychiatrist, my dad was a, a surgeon, then after World War II, became an eye surgeon. And when I decided to go into psychiatry, his advice to me, and it was wonderful advice, was um, learn something the other folks don't do and uh, become good at it. So uh, a lot of the time there was long-term open-ended care, there was long-term hospitalizations, and there was still a huge amount of uh, medication management, which for some people is life-saving and is great. So I focused on short-term strategies and set up the unit at NYU Bellevue after I had learned about this from Master at New York Presbyterian Columbia, uh, Dr. Herbert Spiegel, I attended his program and became part of his seminars for about five years and then transferred it to NYU Bellevue. And we started with a, a, uh, a smoking cessation program and a weight control program using one visit to teach certain dynamics about how to control the smoking habit or how to control your excess eating. And from there, we branched into anxiety, phobias, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, even though at the time, the official name, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, wasn't labeled. And it became very successful, and I used it in my own practice. And I've been writing newspaper columns for over 30 years uh, describing my method of how you can get into short-term uh, strategies uh, with learning, philosophizing about it, and how to find a certain degree of action to move forward, and most importantly, get a new perspective on the old set of problems. And it's true that anxiety is epidemic. Some of it may be hereditary. A lot of it may be learned. And a lot of it may be social factors in terms of a very fast-paced, uh, stressful society that we live in with all kinds of factors influencing us, us, us and making us feel insecure. So my, my whole plan and my whole career has been based on trying to do as much short-term therapy. How long is it? It's open-ended in a sense that when I say open-ended, not forever, but uh, the smoking cessation and weight control was one at the most two visits. But basically, the short-term strategy is to focus on one or two problems, not the whole concept of why we're here and uh, spending eight months on when you were seven years old or nine years old and going on and on and this kind of stuff. That stuff has some value for some people if they want it. But I still think the medical model of what is the problem, how to get it better. You have a piece of dirt in your eye. And you want a piece of dirt taken out. You don't need to get the whole eye uh, taken apart. 
You know, you have a leak I wanna, in the roof. Yeah, and I, uh, I want to just stop you there for a second, doctor, because, sure. uh, you, you know, you mentioned it's you started out doing the short-term therapy, the cognitive therapy, it sounds like, but it's, and you start doing that with uh, weight loss and, and smoking cessation, but those are very specific uh problems, right? So now when you're talking about maybe an overall anxiety disorder, like, and let's talk about an example, there were two examples in your book about one of your patients who was terrified that he was going to get the flu. Oh, it's, you know, and, and wasn't necessarily related to anything, anything realistic. So give us an example in those kinds of, you know, that kind of anxiety, because I think that's, that's really what's prevalent today. Those fear of things that Probably never will happen. Well, I remember there's a, there's a, it, uh, I remember the dog phobia person who was terribly anxious, and the flu person. This is a, a composite example of, of somebody who was uh, afraid to touch things in a public bathroom, afraid to ride in public transportation, and basically, uh, it was really ruining his life. Paying attention to all the uh, uh, TV and radio and newspaper. Uh, discussions about how bad the flu was going to be that year, and the anxiety was percolating up. Um, And we just reviewed in terms of the learning, philosophizing, and action program that I like to use and I developed. He learned how growing up his family was um, uh, always terrified of illness, always terrified of illness, uh, but they functioned quite well. He translated this into the flu. And uh, as it, it started to run his life. And interestingly enough, as we talked and as we got to learn about this, he realized he never had the flu. And he realized, and this is, this is the, 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 the heart of what I'm talking about, get a new perspective on the old set of problems. We're challenging his brain to give him a new perspective on what's going on. He realized that he was driving to work. So he wasn't really worried about public transportation, although he was obsessed with public transportation, which is something he didn't do. And then I taught him some relaxation exercises, whether you call it relaxation or hypnosis, um, to, to uh, control his anxiety. And over a period of a month or two, he actually started to improve by getting a new focus on what was real in his life and what was not real. What's the possibility of getting sick? And what's the probability? Well, you know, it's possible the sun doesn't rise the next day. But even on a cloudy day, the sun is going to be there. Um, It's possible, but what's the probability of the sun not rising? That's minimal, minimal, minimal. And we talked about his possibility and probability of getting sick with the flu. And he was able, with motivation, very motivated to get better, uh, really see things in a different light and improve. That was his problem. Uh, what, what comes to mind is a man who was terrified of, of um, dogs. And he saw a dog coming down the street, even on a leash. He would cross the street, and suddenly he realized he was going to visit a friend of his from college in a different city, and he found out the friend had a dog. And this, this changed his whole life. He was just realizing he couldn't go. And sure enough, uh, we went through a whole process of desensitizing him from dogs, but in the learning, philosophizing, action situation, he grew up with a mother and a grandmother who didn't like dogs. Um, interestingly enough, that was their choice. But in his life, it became a phobic situation that was running his life. So basically, um, we went through a, a strategy where we talked about dogs. Uh, I suggested he get a, a real comprehensive dog book and start looking at dog pictures, which he was okay with. He was anxious in the, in the beginning. And um, then he, after a couple of weeks, he was very comfortable flipping the pictures because he was looking at pictures, and there was no possibility of the dog coming near him uh, from the book. And then we set up a situation where I asked him if he had any trusted friends who had uh, a dog. And he had some neighbors who had dogs, so he found one who was very trusted, and he did a real behavior modification approach where the person who had the dog would hold the dog on a leash, and over a period of two or three weeks, a few times a week, he would approach the dog. Uh, The key here is the dog never, on the leash, never approaches him. So he is the, the master of control. He's in charge of this. And he 
got to closer and closer to the dog, and eventually he was able to go to the dog and pet the dog. Obviously, this was a gentle, kind dog. And over a period of time, he desensitized himself. The anxiety disappeared. The phobic response was gone, and he was able to visit his friend. And these are examples of short-term situations. And it, okay, it so these are specific many, many... examples of the three-step method, right? Focus on the problem, Absolutely. challenge the thinking that led to the problem. Absolutely. I want to repeat it again and replace old behaviors and habits with new ones and to bring relief, obviously. So are we talking like uh, the, the, on the average of, say, five months, let's say, whatever your problem is? Is that considered the short-term therapy, five or six months? Well, I, or I, yeah, I think, you, I think you, could say, you could say a month. You could say five or six months, depending on the problem, and depending on how uh, each individual will process the new information. And once again, the most important thing is we're talking about motivated people who have a problem and want to solve it, like, like much of medical care. If you have a sore shoulder, you want to solve the problem. Uh, you have a piece of dirt in your eye, you want to get rid of it. Obviously, this is not, going to, this is not a universal thing for everybody, but my, my view here is much more short-term therapy should be used because, number one, knowing it's short-term takes a a great deal of the stigma out of mental health care. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end, which oftentimes in in a lot of talk therapy, there is a beginning, there's a long middle, and sometimes it's hard to see the end. I think people have less time to be in therapy. There are more people who are anxious, as we said in the beginning, 40 million people. how many? 40 million people every... 40 million American adults suffer from anxiety disorder every year. So you're talking about a lot of people with not a lot of time and not a lot of money. I think that comes into play. But what about doctors, That's psychiatrists it. included, who and psychologists who refer their patients and social workers to a doctor uh, for medication? Because medication seems to be a, the shortcut, it seems to me. And there are lots of side effects besides being costly. So you, you want to kind of, I guess, with your particular therapy, you're getting away from this. You're not automatically you know, here's Zoloft or Prozac or whatever it is, uh, you know, take this and it'll get rid of your anxiety, which I think is the tendency, it seems to be a trend, at least now. Maybe we're getting away from that. No, you're right. You're, 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 you're spot on. The tendency is medication management, which is sometimes different than, than therapy. But look, medications are life-saving in almost every field of, of, of medical care, whether it's infectious disease, whether it's heart disease, whether it's blood pressure, and mental health. The 50s and the 60s and the 70s developed some great medications. So I'm not against that. Uh, is there over-medication and use of medication? Absolutely. Is there too much mixing and matching with different medicines, sometimes just to get the side effect profile to help someone? Absolutely. But the point is... Uh, in the anxiety disorders and the phobias and even PTSD, and certainly for something like insomnia, um, the way to go, if, if you can do it, is without medication and learn some skills to get a new perspective on the old set of problems, to be able to focus differently. And that's what this book is about, Find Freedom Fast. is about trying to, number one, it shows how I got to be a psychiatrist coming out of a surgical family. It defines some of the, the issues I'm talking about, the anxiety, the phobias, PTSD, the insomnia, and it gives uh, composites of how certain people got through it. I think of um, two, uh, two uh, women in the past, both of whom were pregnant. Pregnancy in the workplace is a very problematic situation, even here we are in 2019, because what happens is uh, it raises the anxiety about the... Uh, time a woman will be off. Remember, we're the only industrialized nation that doesn't have paid time. We have mandated maybe 12 weeks, three months of time off, but that's without pay. And only those lucky few and great companies uh, can get paid. I remember a woman who was a great uh, hostess in a very, very busy restaurant, and there were two or three people who would love to have her job. And she was there for a number of years. She was pregnant with her first child, and she was utterly nervous. She obviously had very little paid um, time off after the baby, and she was just unable to really think clearly. Obviously, her anxiety would be translating to, translated to the fetus, and that's not a good thing. I taught her some relaxation exercises and get, got her to think about the joy of having her first child and the joy of the child and the family relationships with her, her case were excellent. 
and how how he should focus on that because the uh, the job insecurity or potential job insecurity was in the future. It was tomorrow, you know, a, a long tomorrow. Um, interestingly enough, the relaxation exercises, she was imagining a great big movie screen, seeing herself in pleasant situations, seeing herself with a newborn. And interestingly enough, she and her husband went out to dinner at a different restaurant. Someone there knew, someone who worked there knew uh, this had nothing to do with me. Someone knew where she worked as a hostess, and they said, gee, when you decide to come back to work, how about coming to work with us, which she did, and she ended up getting a better job. <clears throat> but that was a, a very nice ending. I remember a, a woman who was a partner. But one of the very- other things I wanted, because I did read that in, uh-huh. in your book, that was an example of one of the case histories, one of the stories. Uh, I think one of the things that you also do is people get into this all or nothing thing. I'm either going to have the job or I'm going to lose this job, and that's it. But that there are other options, other choices, and they really can't see those choices or those options, which I think it seems to me is part of your therapy. There's other stuff out there, whatever it is, whatever the other choices are. I think that's really really important. Yeah, excellent point because part of the, the one, one, your point is really well well taken because that's the point of cognitive behavior therapy and my work is a variation of cognitive behavior therapy, CBT, where you, just what you said, people get into this all or nothing and they truly don't see um, the middle. They don't see the middle and it was, it, it takes me right back to this uh, partner, this woman attorney who became pregnant and she had a wonderful job, did a great, great work, but the negativity of the men around her who had to pick up her workload when she had about a 20-week paid vacation time or paid pregnancy time after the baby was causing her tremendous anxiety. And all she could see was her falling through the cracks and her being disliked. That's the all or nothing. And this is a super intelligent person, uh, an attorney in a very big firm. And you would think, uh, you would think that she she would see it differently, and she didn't. But in a very short uh, period, we taught her some relaxation, had to calm down. And the big change with this woman was to get to know the men who were positive about you having a baby, men who have their own families and are thrilled. And it's interesting, she moved from what you just said, all or nothing, to some middle of the road where she could focus on those men who were thrilled that she was going out having a baby. It changed everything, but it worked through the therapeutic situation because she didn't see it on her own. But on some of these people, whether it was the the person with the dog problem or the flu problem or these women who had uh, anxiety due to their pregnancy and what might happen with their careers, um, they weren't solving them. And it was affecting it, it, it kind of contaminates the whole environment when you can't think clearly. So this is, these are short-term approaches. Could they have uh, benefited from a long-term approach? I, I guess so. They wanted the answers right now. And who would, I'm going to stop that, you there for a second because I want to ask you, who sure. does this therapy, short-term therapy, who doesn't it work for? Say someone's listening and thinking, wow, this might be something that I could, you know, I'd like to engage in, but... Are there actual diagnoses where this isn't going to work? Well, I, I, I think there are clear, there's clear, clear protocols for treating bipolar disorder, which doesn't involve uh, the, the stuff that I'm talking about or writing about. The, the, the schizophrenias as a group of uh, disorders, which doesn't involve what I'm talking about. And these people do better in much different formats. The medication management oftentimes does work. There are some severe mood disorders with depression where, yes, it's true that cognitive therapy uh, may help some of them, some of these people, but the medications um, will work, not all the time, but, and there are other uh, modalities of treatment. So what I'm discussing in the short-term uh, situation is for certain anxieties, phobias, post-traumatic stress. My experience with post-traumatic stress is basically all in the civilian world, are not connected with, with, the, with the military type of experiences. And the American College of Physicians, which takes in all the primary care doctors across the country in 2017, uh, said that cognitive behavior therapy, CBT, was the treatment of choice for insomnia instead of uh, first taking the pills. And uh, that's something that I've been doing for uh, 40 years. using. Let's uh, talk about insomnia, well. because insomnia seems to be 
a very pervasive problem uh, in, in this, at least in the United States and maybe in other Western countries as well. But uh, insomnia, how, would, how do you treat insomnia with short-term therapy, your, your therapy? Well, we're, we're trying, there, there are some situations where a person can't sleep because of genuine physical illness. They're in chronic pain, they're difficult situations, and that would be something that would not be treating. However, the vast majority of insomnia people, for whatever reason, whatever's on their mind, whatever's going on, I like to hear what's happening in their life so I can organize something in terms of getting them to get a new perspective of what's going on. But I teach some very specific strategies, and one of them that I really like is, is, is the one that involves 20 heavily carpeted stairs. And I have someone get into a nice, relaxed state, which takes two or three or four or five minutes. And I let them imagine when they're going to sleep that they're walking down these 20 heavily carpeted stairs. And I ask them to pick a uh, carpet in their favorite color. And as they walk down the stairs, and this takes about an hour or an hour and a quarter, as they walk down the stairs, they, they feel themselves sinking deeper and deeper into the carpet. Um, as they one, two, three, getting to 20, and hopefully they fall into a restful sleep by the time they hit the 20th step. And if that doesn't happen, they try and do it again. It's, it's uh, always uh, a pleasant, pleasing to me to, to note that um, many people find they fall into restful sleep. If they wake up during the night, uh, they can just do this again. So if you teach them that simple exercise, you can help a lot of people with insomnia. The other approach is sometimes I would have someone imagine a great big movie screen. Almost all of us have been to the movies and to just see pleasant thoughts on that screen. We're doing this quickly here uh, as we talk about it, but uh, we go over this in a, in a period of time. Sometimes it takes two visits, three visits, and get the person into strategies to fall asleep. At the same time, you can discuss the issues that might be affecting them in life, job insecurity, family issues, financial issues. Uh, there are all kinds of uh, psychosocial or social issues that can have someone um, nervous and worried and unable to fall asleep. Uh, on the other hand, a uh, part of uh, diagnosing depression uh, could be uh, either too much sleep or too little sleep, and that would mean someone needs to be treated in a different area. They needed to be treated for their depression, and it's not just the anxiety or stress that's causing the insomnia. Uh, I, I hope that answers your question. But the that does answer the question. Yes, no, that's great. And, and that's and, uh, now we don't, we don't have that much time left. But you talk about hypnosis in your book. So right. talk to us. What in what context? How does this fit in hypnosis? What is it well, in terms of what you're? Hypnosis has been around for. It's been officially around for two hundred years. There's a lot of writing about it. A lot of documentation, and it's not hocus pocus. It's not. It's not sleep. Hypnosis is focused concentration at the expense of the periphery. And if you have someone, about 80, 85% of the population is capable of shifting gears and going into the state, whether you call it, uh, there's all kinds of ceremonies out there. There's, transcend- there's meditation, transcendental meditation, relaxation. People relax in a yoga class. Um, the current uh, thinking is this mindfulness. Uh, I believe that uh, all these titles are really different names for the same ceremony, which includes hypnosis. And it's an ability for a person to shift gears and focus specifically on certain things. And when you have someone in that relaxed state, you can teach them strategies that they focus on. And if you're able to um, teach them how to practice this five or six or seven times a day, even for a minute or, or 30 seconds so they know what to do when the situation arises that's causing a difficulty, they can be really helped with it. And this is, was part of my training years ago when I trained with Dr. Herbert Spiegel of uh, New York Presbyterian Columbia because uh, he was a great mentor and expert in this. And it, it does work. It works better when you attach it to a strategy. For example, you have someone in the relaxed state or the hypnotic state and you teach them about these 20 heavily carpeted stairs. For, for overcoming their insomnia, and it works. Uh, is it going to work for everybody? No, it's not going to work for everybody, and most of us realize in, in, in life that not everything works for everybody. Uh, right. One size Do- fits all doesn't work. Uh, Dr. Robert it- London, MD, author of Find 
Freedom Fast, short-term therapy that works. We've run out of time, but you can go online, buy your book. I assume bookstores everywhere and online. Um, and is there a website that we can go to so we can get you know, more information about um, the book? And- uh, there's findfreedomfast.com is the website, and it's also on Amazon. It can be Great. purchased Thanks. Uh, very simply on Amazon. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Okay. Great information. Thank you very much for having me. Thank, thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me is Emily Nelson, actress, described as an acting chameleon, Emily Nelson. She's been in Shameless, Superstore, Glow, Maid of Honor. Uh, An acting chameleon, Emily Nelson, stars as the ominous working class neighbor, Margaret, opposite Oscar winner, Mahershala Ali, who's in Moonlight in the eight-episode third season of HBO's critically acclaimed anthology crime drama, True Detective, and you can Sundays at 9 p.m. As one of the last people to see the children alive, she could just be the prime suspect no one ever expected. Born in Massachusetts, Nelson became a performer at an early age and graduated with a BFA from the prestigious drama department of Carnegie Mellon University. When she's not busy in front of the camera, she teaches and mentors other emerging artists with the David Kagan Studio, International Academy of Film and Television, Young Storytellers, Urban Anthology Project, and more. She now owns and operates her own acting studio, A-C-E-N. Welcome to the show, Emily. Nice to have you here. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Good morning. Well, you definitely are an acting chameleon, so let's start with that. Why that (laughs) moniker? Why do we call you that? Uh, You've obviously, well, now you're in True Detective, but you've been in a lot of shows, including Shameless, which is one of my favorite shows. But anyway, so an acting chameleon, how and why do we describe you as that? 
Well, I think it's just another way of saying character actor. You know, I mean, what I do is, is, is pretty old. You know, I think I, I hearken back to, I'm a theater actor. I came up through the theater, and which means that I do everything. You know, I do comedies. I do drama. I play characters who, at least on film and television, for the most part, who look like me. You know, my, my voice changes a little bit, um, and they're usually around my age. But other than that, the, the genres that I play are all over the place. And I think that um, there's something about the sort of machine of the Hollywood industry that when something works, people like to have a second scoop of it. And so we end up having a lot of actors, not all actors, obviously, but a lot of actors who will stay in the same genre or stay uh, near similar characters. And not necessarily because that's all that they do, but because that's what the marketplace is asking for. And I have sort of been able to eke out... Um, a career where nobody's really asking me to do the same thing over and over again, which for me is a huge joy. That's really where I get my pleasure of being an actor is that every character I approach is utterly unique based on them being a unique individual in whatever universe it is that they're living in, right? And um, so I get to kind of every time I get a new job, even new audition for that matter, get in, investigate, put on someone else's shoes, see the world from a different worldview, investigate how to actually get a glimpse of it, what makes a person tick inside out. To me, that's fascinating. So uh, I'm just an old school character actor, but um, I think the chameleon thing is sort of saying like, you know, if you you watch my comedy reel or my drama reel, you know, little clips of things I've done over the years, I change in each of them. And, uh, you know, it's, it's no great, it's no great award, but I just personally enjoy it myself. <laughs> it seems to me that's not only do you enjoy it, obviously it gets your adrenaline do- going. You do all of these different kinds of characters. Maybe step back because as an actress, I mean, there are so many young people out there trying to do what you do and they never quite make it. They aren't able to do it for whatever reasons. And, and there are probably a lot mm-hmm. of different reasons. So like taking you back to Carnegie Mellon, yes, very prestigious school. You have a lot of well-known people who have come out of Carnegie email and how did you start I mean like what why you you know I mean because you do get a lot of actors and actresses along the way who young people who just never get there for some reason you obviously did so I, the question is and I'm yeah. how did you do it good yeah question I mean I I sometimes wonder myself uh, you know <laughs> I think a lot of it was chutzpah a lot of it is luck and timing I do have a particular um, story with Carnegie Mellon, though, um, I got lucky. I went to a public high school in right outside of Chicago, and we had three theaters in this high school. One sat 2,000 seats, one sat 500, and the other sat 200. And between those three theaters, we produced around 11 shows a year. And so I had this uh, incredible opportunity to be a part of so many different really, really challenging, high-quality productions as a high school student. So that's really where I, I personally got kind of hooked into the world of storytelling through theater, through acting. And I did anything they would let me do, costumes, props, whatever. I just wanted to be a part of what was going on. And the summer between my junior and senior year of high school, um, I think I was having a bit of a grouchy year, maybe, you know, high school, high school uncomfortableness. And I just, I wanted to, I wanted to get out of town if I could. And I'd known this girl a year ahead of me who had gone to a summer program at Georgetown for theater, which at the time I knew nothing about universities. And I don't know what Georgetown's uh, theater program is like. I think that people go there for, you know, poli sci or, you know, things like that. And uh, so I signed up. My parents signed me up. I was lucky enough they could do that. And that was canceled at the last moment due to lack of interest, which I hope makes more sense now. I I was really upset. (laughs) I was like, I do not want to stay in this summer town for like one more summer. And so I think my mother, you know, much for her own peace of mind, was scrambling to figure out something. And she said, you know, when you were a little girl, we lived in Pittsburgh and your grandparents used to go see plays at this place called Carnegie Mellon. Why don't you see if they teach actors? Like we really genuinely knew nothing, you know? And so I go to my, you know, college, you know, whatever room that we didn't even have a counselor, just a room. And so I found some in a file drawer. I found some stuff from Carnegie Mellon. I called them up. Turns out they did have an acting program, and they did have a summer program for high school, uh, like, about to be seniors. So I called them up. Turns out admissions is closed. I begged them to let me in. I sent them this, like, ridiculously long resume because I'd had all this crazy opportunity in my public high school. 
somehow they let me in last minute. So I went six weeks, incredible training. And the point of that summer program was exactly what you're, you were asking about, was they were going to give you their opinion as to whether or not you were good enough to try to chase this dream, right? And they're like, whether or not you should follow this professionally. And they're like, this is brutal information for a 16-year-old, but this is what you've asked us to tell you. So that's what everybody was there to do. And they warned us constantly. They're like, if you can do anything else, go do it. If there's anything you think you might, I'd like to be an actor or maybe a veterinarian, veterinarian all the way. They, were, they would dissuade us from it constantly. And they'd also say, you're never going to get into this school, yada, yada, yada. So I did the six weeks. Well, I want to stop you there because I want to know what they said about you because you said they're brutal. They critique you. You've got to be able to take it, obviously. So what were some of their comments about you? Are you a natural? I mean, you're a natural (laughs) and you just have to develop your talents. And so go for it. I'll tell you what one of my teachers said. And I just want to preface this by saying this is embarrassing for me to say (laughs) um, on a public radio show, but it is the truth. So at the end of the six weeks, they sat down and they would give us a critique. And I had this wonderful teacher named Ma Den, who was uh, a theater, or, um, I'm sorry, directing and acting professor there. And this is what he said to me. <laughs> so re- absurd. But he said, you are like Stanislavski. If you want to act, you have a God-given gift, you can act. He said, if you really want to challenge yourself, you'll direct. And of course, at 16, um, and I don't know if you know who Stanislavski is, but Constantine Stanislavski is great, excellent. Uh, you know, he's held in extreme high regard for pretty much every theater student. And um, and so so that all I heard was Stanislavski. I didn't hear the second part. And what's very funny is that I left that program at the end of the six weeks, and I actually did not like the school. I thought they were very uh, full of themselves, and I told them so. I had a teacher named Don Marinelli, who's a fantastic guy, and he would ask the whole class, you know, who wants to go to school here? Everybody would raise their hand. He said, who doesn't? And I raised my hand, and I told him why. I said, you know, I just feel like people who are great don't have to tell us that they're great so often. You know, I just think it's, you guys are going really overboard with this we're the best school stuff. And then on top of that, there were a handful of girls in this group. You remember, we were 16, and there were a handful of girls who were blonde and pretty and, you know, developed for 16-year-old girls, and they got the praise. They got the, you're going to do well in this business. And I just said to him, I said, I can't believe you're telling us that. We're 16. I was like, no one in this room looks like the adult they're going to be. So to be able to tell these girls that they have a future based on what their 16-year-old self looks like is completely absurd. And so I just, I, I really railed against it because I, I did not look that way. I, I, I'm a short, um, chubby, cute little girl. And that's I've been that my whole life, right? Now I'm just not so, li- I'm just, I'm not young anymore. That's the only difference. <laughs> and. <laughs> So I just, I, I just really, I just pointed it out, you know, and so I was sort of done with that place. I was like, uh, Carnegie Mellon was very famous at the time for taking very beautiful women and very masculine men, lead, leading lady types, leading men types. So I left, end of the summer. I was like, all right, done with that place. I get a letter in the mail uh, about a month later on my birthday, oddly enough, it says, um, congratulations, you've been accepted to the Carnegie Mellon drama department, but not the acting option, the directing option. So this was crazy for me because I never asked to go to school there. And I also had no idea there was a directing major. I I literally did not know that you could go to that school and come out with a BFA in directing. Like, it just hadn't come up. Nobody had told me. I didn't read about it. You know, there was no internet at that point. So I wasn't, like, perusing their website. Like, I had no idea. So through a series of events and my parents figuring out that Carnegie Mellon was, in fact, a prestigious school, um, I ended up going there for directing, and I had a little. Do you think they chose you because you were? There. I mean, you weren't the blonde. You weren't the blonde, blue-eyed yeah. leading lady, as you said, short and a little chubby but right. cute. Uh, but you were also probably smart. Maybe you were smarter than the rest exactly. of them, and you know, and that yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I and, and although I will say, for, in defense of my classmates, uh, Carnegie Mellon is full of extremely intelligent people. But I did. I had a very sharp, analytic mind. And um, so that was absolutely part of it. You're 100% correct. But I didn't really see that (laughs) as as an 18-year-old. I felt like I was very talented, but because I didn't look like the other people, they put me in this other very great category. But I just – so what they did was that year, it was the first time they ever did it, they took all the disciplines, um, acting, musical theater, directing, production and design, and for the first seven weeks of class, they made us – they mixed us up. 
made us take each other's classes in hopes that we would bond and create some friendships because a conservatory training program is so tunnel visioned and the hours are so long and so intense that you tend to not really make that many social connections outside of who you're directly working with. So they were trying to, you know, mix us up a little bit. And so I just decided that for that seven weeks, anytime I was in acting class, I would just throw down. I would just make sure I left that seven weeks so that there was no doubt in anybody's mind that I was just as talented as anybody here. And it was just my own personal little thing. I didn't think anything would come of it. By the time Thanksgiving rolled around freshman year, the acting professors came to me and they were like, do you want to switch majors? And I was like, hmm, let me think about that. <laughs> but So I did. I tried to double major between acting and directing for a little while, but the workload is eventually you have to pick. So I graduated with a BFA in acting. And um, Did, you, did and I, you, I, ever, I you ever feel during that whole time, I mean, you got your degree, that maybe this is too much for me? It, I mean, it doesn't sound like it. It sounds like you were pretty, you know, pretty sure about what you wanted to do and you were able to do it and you had a focus. But any time that you thought, Maybe this, I'm not, oh, yeah. maybe I should be a veterinarian. I don't know. But um, yeah, I know. something, yeah. <laughs> you know what? It's a good question. I, I mean, I still feel that way. I mean, I'm still on the roller coaster of what am I doing? So I just, I just end up back on the path. And the truth was is that, and it still is, because uh, I think it's pretty healthy as an actor. This is a very hard road to go. I know we, we have a celebrity culture that really, you know, props up and celebrates actors and you know, makes this world seem very fantastic. And at the top, there's a lot of money. But for most of us who are journeymen, who are working actors, this is a, this is a path of chaos, of not knowing. Um, as an actor, you don't have, you're, you're, you're kind of helpless. You know, you just kind of have to, you work to get the opportunities, but you have to sort of show up. And then it's subjective. Other people get to decide whether or not you're going to do the best job. Emily, what about the money situation? Not that you have to tell us how much you earn every year, but let's say, because you're right, people, celebrities, you know, it's, they, you know, make millions of dollars on a film or whatever. But in your case, you're a working actress, someone who's always Mm -hmm. up there, you're in good stuff. So what is sort of the average salary for someone who has your reputation and is busy most of the time? Well, I think it differs because, uh, uh, that's a good question. I would say people at my level are probably bringing in, and every year is different, but um, anywhere between 60000 and maybe 120 I would be pretty happy for a year for 120 But you also have to remember most of us live in New York or L.A. And so the cost of living here, in any, like we, actors who are like me, we always joke, living anywhere else, we, we would own houses. We would be wealthy. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But living in LA and the cost of being an actor all lands on me. Even though I have an employer, they don't pay for my headshots. They don't pay for all the things that it takes for me to stay in this business, which is quite a lot. And I have to say the new tax laws uh, have hit actors squarely between the eyes if they're not incorporated. I'm getting a little technical here, but um, we are, on one hand, we're self-employed. You know, imagine if you had to go for a job interview every two days if you were, if you were doing really well. It's, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of effort. And um, it's a lot of money. And living in these centers is expensive, you know. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a big trade-off. And when you say that, yeah, living in New York, living in L.A., and then I mm-hmm. assume that you also, you have to be kind of out there, don't you? I mean, going out to lunch with people or dinner or you have to yes. be seen to some extent. And that's costly. Yeah. That it also costs a lot of money. Free. Yeah, yeah, you have to produce your own content. You have to do publicity. You have to, uh, I mean, there's just so many things to do. And so the idea is that either you're breaking even, you're making some money, or you're still going towards that gamble when you do get a, a larger paycheck. And one year you can, you know, you can hit a show and that show will, will do very well for you and maybe fill up your coffers a tiny bit. And then you might have another year the next year. I remember in 2000, when the recession hit. That was sort of the first big shake I think we had as an economy where people were like, oh, you mean I can't stay in the same job my whole life? And so people were, you know, as a populace, the United States was dealing with job insecurity. And, you know, my friends and I would joke, we're like, well, we got this. We're, we're <laughs> literally trained ourselves just to be job insecure. So we, we've been in the gig economy from the get-go. 
So your yeah, so job insecurity, that's a great example. And also uh, that kind yeah. of brings me to my next question because, okay, there's the money mm-hmm. part of all of this, but also the emotional part. Like how do you keep yourself grounded? Mm-hmm. My first guest was a, a, a physician who treats anxiety disorders. And so I'm mm-hmm. thinking about uh, certainly someone in your position it would seem to me, can be constantly anxious or maybe you get a high from this kind of work because it's not boring, it's not mundane. So like your emotional state, talk to us about that. Well, you know, I think like most people, and I I am making an assumption here, it changes. You know, I have days where I'm feeling great. I'm having days where things just click along normally and I'm having days where I do have anxiety because I I don't know if this is all worth it or I doubt that it's ever going to turn out. Um, and I have to question myself, and I consider that healthy, you know, for me. That, that's normal for me because you want to be able to stop and take stock sometimes and be like, wait a minute, am I really looking at this in, in, a, in a full, not just, you know, eyes on the prize kind of way? Um, I teach acting, so I work with a lot, all kinds of actors, people who are just beginning, people who are, we call them journeymen, who have been doing it for a long time, and I recommend that everybody goes to therapy. Everybody. You need a support system. You need to learn how to take care of yourself because actors are in this really interesting position. We are both the violinist and the violin. Like our bodies, our minds, our hearts, our souls are literally part of the instrument that we use to perform. And so our requirement, not just for self-care, but for self-growth is at the forefront of what we do. So not only do I need my body and my voice and my spirit to be able to be flexible and open enough to receive uh, notes and direction and be able to collaborate with people, but I also am changing all the time. And so me playing a role now, if I played that same role when I was in my 20s, it would be a very different performance. It'd be entirely different because I see things differently. I understand the world differently. I I feel differently. Um, The way my body moves is different. So to me, that's exciting, is that as an actor, most actors are always in class their whole lives. Even if you're not working, you're in a local theater somewhere, or you're in class, or you're in a workshop, because we constantly have to sort of shed our old selves in order to be available for whatever the next experience is that we're going to have. There's there's really nothing stagnant about being an actor. And I think that so you are the sum of your experiences and your experiences at, at age 40 are going to be a lot different than age 20. And you, you incorporate is what yeah. I hear you saying, incorporate you all of this to. into the role that you're playing. So, uh, and as like yeah. you said, going to therapy or being in counseling would seem to me really would be imperative because you really have to have an understanding of yourself, don't you? If you're going to take on another role, I mean, you have to know where you're coming from. Uh, otherwise, it's, it would seem to me... Yeah. Yeah, impossible to be able to be yeah, a good it's, it's actor. exactly right. I mean, there's, there's different levels of, of access, accessing yourself as an actor. You know, I can go and do a, a fun comedy or, you know, a Nickelodeon show. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not necessarily digging deep on that one. But I am, you know, comic timing is important. We're having fun. There's tons of stagecraft involved in that. But then there are roles, like the, the role I played for um, True Detective, where you know, she, I played a very broken woman and she is carrying a lot of the secrets and a lot of the emotional pain for a whole community. She, she, sort, of, she sort of represents this leftover bit um, about what it means to remember, what it means to hold, just to say, you know, there were people here and they were loved. And what happens when you're the last one to say that? And um, that, I, you know, that you have to have some vulnerability. You have to be able to open up and, and let these uh, imaginary circumstances move through you in a way that they do move you. And that really is the key uh, to being an effective actor, is the ability to offer not only behavior and performance of whoever the character is that you're essentially advocating for. You know, I, I, I think of acting sometimes like tag team wrestling. I think of the character as a real person. And I'm like, you know what? Let me just tag you out for the scene, and I will come in and live your life for you. I will come in and, and fight for your right to love, your right to live, or your right to express yourself, or whatever it is that's so important for you as a human. I will step in, use my voice, my body, and I'm going to come in and have this experience for you. You know, I think of them as real people, and it, it helps me have compassion, and it helps me um, stay grounded. You know, so that right, last question because we have three minutes about, left, yeah, and I have, so I, uh, yeah. you know, we could so. 
the most cha- maybe this maybe there isn't one necessarily because they're all different but the most challenging role i mean is would you say this what is what has been your most challenging role or maybe even one that you are uncomfortable with thinking i'm not sure i can actually do this i mean i they i know they hired me yeah. uh, i auditioned i got the part but mm, i'm not sure this is working I've been lucky so far that hasn't been the case because the, the auditions are usually so on the nose about what they're looking for. But I will say I, I did them film Maid of Honor about 10 years ago. And that one was tough because they were writing the script as we went. And that, this is 2007. A lot of the jokes were at my physical expense. They were about me being fat rather than allowing me to be a comedian. And that was, that was difficult. That was difficult trying to negotiate that with the creativity of the director, trying to, you know, be a good sport, trying to support what was going on. But, you know, there were, there were some things there that I was like, uh, this is not how I would do it. <laughs> but I like the way the movie turned out. And I think the editors and the director did very well with my character. And I think in the end they understood. Um, I didn't, I, you know, I was a new actor. I was young. And I said what I could. As an actor, you can't always speak up. It's, it's sort of an interesting little dance you have to do with the power and the creativity of a, of a huge studio movie like that. So that's a but whole I'm other set of challenges. Yeah. Exactly. That's probably another show <laughs> that I can talk to you about, right? actually. Yeah, I mean, we only have like about a, a minute left. So um, yeah. website that we can go to, to actually, because I know you have your own acting studio. I mentioned that earlier, A-C-E-N. Is that online? Is that mm-hmm. something that, uh, yeah, a website that it we is, can yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, I access? have a studio here in Los Angeles. And due to my schedule, my, um, my group classes are going on hold until the summertime. So I'll be doing another set in the summertime um, when I come back. But I still intermittently, I work privately one-on-one with students, and we just negotiate our schedules. I don't actually have an acting website. My manager for years never wanted me to have one. But people can find me on Instagram at the real Emily Nelson or on Twitter at Emily underscore Nelson. You can find me on Facebook. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of peppered all over the place. Uh, maybe, maybe I do need a personal website. I don't know. Well, think about that one. It was great talking to you today. Uh, A lot of insights, actually. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, Emily Nelson. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Great having you, Emily. Thanks. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. (laughs) 